Thanks for the text. Okay, let's turn our attention to different basic uh, subject in the spiritual world. Who was not here for the previous talk? Where were you? Where were you? Good question. Flying at the San Francisco. It's okay. I did, I That's no excuse. <laughs> I've been with you virtually for many years. Oh, I see. <laughs> I'm with you. Oh. Okay. <laughs> see, okay. Well, <coughs> there is something <coughs> fundamental <coughs> that we can extract from the time of year that we're going through and also provides a completely basic message for all of life. Marriage relationships, child raising, one's own inner growth, <coughs> one's learning experience, right? You've all been through some sort of a learning. And this theme of inspiration and disappointment or getting high, staying high, right? Very serious challenge in the learning. For example, you always need to reinforce that inspiration, right? You, those of you who've been on some sort of a program, you need to carve out time where you can re-inspire yourself, right? Just like in a marriage, you need those romantic, you know, anniversaries that the husband always forgets, you know, um, so that you can reignite a passion. So, similarly for your learning, whether it's a summer, you can go back and learn a couple of weeks to re-establish yourself in that area. It's very important. But let's try to grasp this theme <coughs> at its highest level, and then. We can try to think through its practicalities as well. And that is that life consists always of a phase of inspiration and then a phase where it's taken away. Let me give you the Kabbalistic expression of this. Very abstract, but very powerful. I mean, Jackie tells me that you are New York's intellectual black belts. <laughs> so <coughs> let's try to deal with this as seriously as we can. And Kabbalah, as you know, is always very abstract but is a very powerful model for everything. So let me tell you the ideas that's written in the Kabbalah, and then we see what it means. And what's written is this, that when lights shine in the world, they always shine twice. The great Kabbalistic work of the Arizal begins that way. Lights shine. Why do we talk about lights? Because the world itself is a revelation. It's not something real. It's a divine substance, but it reveals itself to us in a certain way. And that's the medium of light. Light is the medium of revelation. And there's a lot to talk about here. But nevertheless, the creation begins with light. The first statement of creation, right? Let there be light. I mean, after the initial statement of creation itself. So light shines twice in the world. The first time, the light is perfect. Very intense. And the reason it is perfect and intense is because it needs to carve open a space where there's no space before. I mean, are you interested in Kabbalah? Yes. 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 Wasn't very enthusiastic, was it? <laughs> but it needs to <coughs> carve open <coughs> space. <coughs> as soon as it's done that, the light disappears. It's done its work, but it leaves an empty, aching loneliness and a longing for the perfect light that was there. And that pain and suffering and 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 longing brings back the light a second time. But the second time it comes is almost nothing compared to the first. Very, very, very faint echo of the first light. But this one is the one that's designed to be, <coughs> meant to be, and it's the one that lasts. Now, I'm sure you all feel very Kabbalistically educated, and I'm sure you... <coughs> but that's what's called Orishan or Sheni or Chayzet, all technical terms for this. Those who studied a bit of Hasidus will know. But those are the two lights, first light and second light. The first light is perfect, but it never lasts. 
And the second light is imperfect and very small, pathetically small compared to the first, but it's the one that lasts and the one that is meant. What, what, is, what is this idea telling us? Well, let me express it in a more, let's bring it down somewhat, just one step, and then we'll bring it down into the practical. Everything that happens in the world must happen in potential first. Nothing can ever be until it's possible. For example, the, the way you'd say this in the more familiar terms is, a thing can only exist when its place exists, right? You, can never, you can't have a thing in the world without a place. Unless there's a space for the thing, it cannot be. Correct? This is the deep meaning of the sages when they say that everything, everything has a place and everything has a time. Time is really the place of events. But before a thing can be in the world, it must be possible. We call this in Hebrew, Bekoach. Bekoach means the potential. The first, the potential must be there. And then we have the Bepoel, the actual. The potential is always perfect. Always perfect. It's infinite, it's endless, it's perfect. And the actual is never perfect. The potential, the dreams, what could be, always perfect. Very often it li- in life it appears not to actually arrive because it's just a big disappointment. You know, The anticipation is much better. <laughs> but that's the way it is. Think about it. You wake up in the morning, the day's ahead of you. Amazing potential. Whoa, who knows what I'm, what, what I'm going to achieve today? Whom will I meet? What will happen? Perfect. And nothing can go wrong in it because it's all the dreams of perfection. But at the end of the day, what do you have? Only the very small amount of things that you actually did, and those not perfect either. When a child is born, it's an amazing explosion of potential. This child could be anybody. What amazing joy. But very anxious because he's done, done nothing yet. At the end of a life, right, all the potential has been expended. What's left? Only what the life actually achieved. Let me put this another way for you. According to Kabbalah, <coughs> The first phase of perfect potential is male. And the phase of completion and imperfection is female. What do we mean? The beauty and blessing of the male is endless infinite potential. The curse of the male, only potential. The beauty of the female, she brings birth into the world. It's a real child. The curse of the female, only this one. Only this one. You know, I'll never forget the experience of having to dissect a human embryo in medical school. You see that the kidneys, piece of the kidney breaks off in the embryo as it develops within the mother's body and starts to move down in the body to become the organs that will form seed. In the male, these organs form seed by the billion. In the woman, they form eggs in the ovary, one at a time, and you can count them. Conception takes place that billions meet one. The female quality, specification. To make it real, it has to be in the world as a specific thing. Maleness is a... The Maral says a man can marry many women in Torah law because he's a multipotential source. What woman in her right mind wants more than one husband? I mean, one's usually, you know, more than enough. <clears throat> Do you see this? The Hebrew word for female, you need to know this as women. The Hebrew word for feminine, female, is nikkeva. The word means to make specific. Nikkeva, Hashem, nikvu what the ones who are specified by name. Maleness... Hopeless overabundance of potential. Men, dreamers of perfection. How much they actually achieve? Very little, usually. Female, the woman, brings reality. But it's always finite, a finite world. It can only hold us. Is this clear? So the phase one is the phase of infinite potential. And it's always perfect, the potential. But it never lasts. And it gives way to the world of the real. And the real is only 
It's real, it's beautiful, that's what we're here for. But it's a limited amount that the world can hold. Let's take the next step. All of life has these two phases. So there's nothing more important to remember than this. Some people say that this is the most important thing they ever learned. This certainly could save a marriage, let alone a life. Let's take a few examples. Let's take a national example. The Jewish people, we've just been through seven weeks from Pesach to Shavuot. Pesach is unbelievable potential. Jewish people taken out of Egypt in a blaze of miracles. <coughs> Eagle's wings. Hashem reveals Himself. Unbelievable. Ten plagues, etc. And then, surprise, dropped in the desert. Desert is always the zone of death forces. Hard work walking through the desert against all the forces of evil. Only when you've had both of those can you reach Sinai. First stage one, Hashem does it all. You just watch. You know the ten plagues in Egypt were a crescendo experience of spirituality. <clears throat> Each one higher than the one before. Let me put it this way. The Maral says that the plagues in Egypt proceeded in reverse order of the statements of creation. The world was created with ten sayings, ten statements. First, Bracious, in the beginning. Second, let there be light. According to Kabbalah, ten spherical layers, ten layers of reality being built. Why were there ten plagues in Egypt? Because the Egyptians had so contaminated all of reality, they were so immoral and so evil, that each plague came to detoxify, to purify one layer of reality. You build from the center outwards. You purify, you peel the layers away from the center, from the out till you get back to the center. How did it work? Think about it. What was the first statement of creation? In the beginning, pure beginning. What was the last of the plagues? Destruction of the? Firstborn. Wrong sort of beginning. Impure beginning. Immoral beginnings. The second statement of creation. Let there be light. The second last plague. The plague of? Darkness. Darkness. Extinct. You see, it's beautiful to understand this. They must have taught you this when you were five at Hebrew school, no? Well, you better get your money back. We won't go through them all now, but look it up. You're talking about reversing the process of creation. On that incredible midnight when the firstborn were destroyed, you've reached back to the moment of? In the beginning. And there you have Hashem Himself, God Himself alone. You know that we say in the Haggadah, right? What do we say by the tenth plague? Anivalo Malach, Anivalo Saraf, Anivalo Shaliach. I did this myself. The other plagues, God does through divine emanations. The tenth plague, He appears Himself. By the way, a moment's thought will show you. I'm sure your minds are racing ahead. You've been through the whole Torah already. What about the Ten Commandments? Which is the first one? I am. Also, moment of essence. <clears throat> by the way, what was the tenth of Abraham's tests? Having to sacrifice his firstborn. Can you see we're getting back again? You see the pattern? That's amazing, right? Isn't it amazing? Glad you came. Huh? <laughs> you see the pattern again and again. The whole Torah is based on the same structure of ten. <clears throat> now, that tenth midnight, amazing. And seven days later, it gets even more when the sea splits. And the Jewish people see through the heavens unbelievable experience. And then they walk through the desert. In Torah, you know, when you're six years old, a desert is a place of heat and no water, no light. But when you more sophisticated, so a desert is always a place of death. The Jewish people spent 38 years in the desert. They were faced with 10 ordeals and they failed all of them. The pattern is, first, it's done for you. Taken out of Egypt, blaze of miracles, and you do no work. You just sit there and watch it. Then God says, get the message. Now let's see you do it. And then you have to walk through the desert. You know, the first month, the month of Nisan, the word Nisan means miracles. Pesach, miracles. Miraculous. He does it all. You know what the zodiac is of Nisan? What's the mazal of Nisan? The sheep. The sheep is a passive animal. It just follows. No strength of its own. The next month, you are in the desert. The ox, the bull, 
complete opposite. Doesn't follow at all. Develops its own strength. Complete opposite. And the third month, the giving of the Torah, this month, Sivan, the month of? Twins. Twins. Gemini. Perfect harmony. Mm-hmm. Two tablets, oral and written law, Moses and Aaron, Hashem and us, all the dualities coming together in perfect love and harmony. Phase one, it's done for you. Phase two, no help at all. Do it yourself. And then you develop the strength so that you have a real relationship. <clears throat> when the father teaches his child to work, walk, first he does it. He lifts him up by the hands. The little child stands on his feet. An amazing moment. He's standing on his feet. He takes his first step. What an exhilarating moment. And he can't fall because his dad's holding his hands. And as he takes that first exhilarating step, that's when his father lets go. And he stands there terrified and alone. And abandoned by the one who put him in that situation. That's when he learns to walk. And only after he takes that first frightened step on his own can he run into his father's arms and realize that when his father let go, he was being shown more love than when he held his hands. And it's always like that. You teach your child across the street, again and again, very, very carefully. There comes a moment when the mother has to step back. Very, very tense, anxious moment. If the kid makes it, it's wonderful. If he doesn't, tragedy. It's always like that. The real kindness is where you give independence. You know the verb we use for giving kindness in Hebrew? Gomel chesed. Gomel chesed. To give kindness. The word gomel in Hebrew means to withhold. You know what gomel means? To wean from the breast. Child is suckled, gets old enough, the mother takes him off. No more milk. That's called give, give chesed means to withhold food? Absolutely. The real kindness is where you detach and give independence. Right? Where you, a real spiritual teacher makes you independent of him. <clears throat> an invalid guru makes you dependent on him. The disciples are dependent on the teacher. It's all debate in Hasidus. Right? You live through the Rebbe, attached, it's a greatness. On the other hand, there's a greatness in being detached and build your own strength. Be that as it may. <clears throat> Phase one, it's done for you. It's perfect. Phase two, you do it on your own. Always. You need to... The, the goal is to reach a relationship with God, with Hashem, where He is the ultimate and the create, creator, and you are a self-created individual. There's content. You've walked through the desert. You've built. You've... It applies to women too, by the way. In case you think that the orthodox view of women is to be a barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. <laughs> you know, many years ago, a very outstanding young lady, very amazing, beautiful, gifted young girl. The fact that she's my daughter <coughs> is irrelevant. <laughs> she came to me and she said, Abba, I'm 19. I'd like to get married. Do you think you could find me a victim? <laughs> so I said, 19, absolutely. I went to my rabbi, one of the great rabbis of this generation, and I said, you know, daughter's 19, she'd like to get married. He said, not yet. Not yet? Like 19, it's over the hill. You know, like, <laughs> why not? He said, she hasn't had time to develop and assert her own unique personality. She risks becoming somebody else's empty echo. That's not a relationship. Two people echoing each other's emptiness is a relationship. A relationship is two people with content, rich content, something to contribute. There's a real relationship. He's ultra-Orthodox. That's what he said. So she started teaching, she developed that, she met a young man with this similar enthusiasm, talent. You should listen to Ashirim, by the way, she's amazing. Go online and listen to her classes. What's her name? Ruthie Halberstadt. Halberstadt. Anyway. The point is, she's got a terrible South African accent, but otherwise she's good. <laughs> um, the point is that um, step one, stage one is done for you. 
It's always like that. How did you learn to ride a bicycle? Your father ran along holding the saddle, right? And you were riding, it was amazing. Then you look back and he wasn't holding anymore. <laughs> That's where you learn to ride. But if you hadn't done it for you, you never would have gotten there. But if you hadn't let go, you would have never learned. You need to be inspired. It needs to be done for you. You need to see what you're capable of. But then you need to be, go solo. And therefore, that's always the pattern. <clears throat> Step one, unbelievable perfection. Potential. Inspiring. But sooner or later, you have to do it on your own. That's where you become real. Let's take a personal example. That was the national. But let's take the birth of the individual. So the Gemara says, when a child is conceived, in the womb is taught the whole Torah. Little child, Jew, non-Jew, man, woman. The little baby is taught the whole Torah. He's an angel, teaches him the whole Torah. He sees from one end of the world to the other. There's a light lit above his head. He knows his future. He knows his capacity. He knows cosmic wisdom. And as he's about to be born, he gets a blow, a cruel blow, and he forgets everything. And he's born as a simple child who knows nothing. The question is, why would Hashem arrange for a child to be taught the whole Torah and then make him forget it when he's about to need it? The answer is because you need it to be, you need the inspiration, you need to have all that wisdom. That means when you're born, you know nothing. But deep within is all the wisdom you'll ever need. You know, when you, te- when you learn something spiritually true, you do not have a sense of learning, you have a sense of recognition. You say, that's right. How do you know? Because it's resonating with the deep inner, your own version. A good teacher, by the way, any of you teachers? Teachers, anyone? A good teacher doesn't put stuff in. A good teacher brings it out. Indoctrination is not what you want. Education, you draw it out. In the Talmud, when the students ask the Rebbe a question, he says, what do you think? Let's bring it out of you. A good teacher evokes it from the student, brings out their own natural wisdom, their own talents, their own uniqueness. And therefore, that's what it is. Child taught by an angel, and he forgets it. But just out of reach, you know all that wisdom is there. You know you have access to it. If you clarify yourself and you get overcome your, your childishness and your your blocks and your erotic nature. See, it's all there. A pure intuition. <clears throat> what you need. By the way, the Khan of Vilna says something amazing. He says that, you know, the Medrash says when you die, three angels come to greet you. You move down a channel with a light. There's a whole discussion in the Talmud. But three angels come to greet you. One comes to count up all your mitzvahs. One comes to count up all your sins, all your various, and the third one comes to see what you have become. Who are you? With a man, it's essentially his Torah learning. With a woman, it's essentially a Torah practice, a kindness. Who are you? The God of Illness says something amazing. He says, as these three angels come to greet you, the third one who comes to assess what you have become, as he approaches, you recognize his face. He turns out to be the angel that lived with you before you were born. And now at the end of your life, he's come to say, did you do it? That amazing study sessions that we had together before you went and gave it. Did you do it? It's always like that. Phase one, it's given for free. Phase two, you're left on your own. You have to walk through the desert. The word Pesach, by the way, means to leap over. Pesach, first time you leap to the 50th level. You have to traverse the intermediate steps. And then you have to make every step count. Fly now, pay later. Leap to the 50th level for free. First night of Pesach, whatever you want. You can leave the door unlocked. You don't no, no, no need any protection. Then you have to walk through the desert. One step after another to reach Sinai. The Rambam says, Life is like standing on a dark plain on a stormy night. You stand there beaten by the wind and lashed by the rain, hopelessly lost. And at the moment of greatest despair, there's suddenly a flash of lightning. 
And in that instant, you see the road clearer than by, the day, by day. And as you see it, the light disappears. And the rest of the night, you have to walk through the storm on memory alone of a flash of light that you once saw. Some people see more flashes and some people see less, but nobody walks in the light. That's what it is. Phase one, amazing. But then it goes away and it leaves the longing and the knowledge of the fact that it can be regained. And then you make it yours, you work for it, you, you, you make it real. You know, I work in the so-called Balchuva field. People who didn't have a, not brought up religious, they were just brought up normal. <laughs> and uh, as a young man, he comes in, you start learning with him, blown away, unbelievable, Torah wisdom, amazing. Then he starts learning in yeshiva, and sooner or later it becomes very hard work, very hard work. But that's when you grow. I was once standing at a wedding in Rishalayim <coughs> years ago. There was a young man talking to a certain famous rabbi. This rabbi, one of the great rabbis in Israel, happens himself to be a Balchiva. Forty-five years ago, he was at all-night parties. He's a very well-known rabbi. He said to the young man, how's it going? The young man said, you know, rabbi, when I started learning, it was amazing. Every line of Gemara alert was just blew me away. Now I'm in Yishiv and I'm sweating blood. It's very hard. The rabbi said, I see you're in phase two. And that's where you become real. Marriage is like that. Marriage. I don't know whether in America marriage is still done. <laughs> but if it is, you know, in Judaism it's still uh, popular. If it is, marriage is like that in many ways. One way is that marriage has two phases. The first is amazing. In English you call it romance. In Hebrew there isn't even a word for that. Because phase one dissipates. What is romance? You're sitting in the room, this person walks in, suddenly things go pink. <laughs> Music starts wafting in from one direction, bells start ringing someplace else, you get the tight-chested feeling, things get hazy. And what is that? After you get married, about two and a half hours after you get married, you know, <coughs> at least for men, it's gone. <laughs> Young man says to me, Rabbi, I married the wrong girl. Knuckles white on the table. I said, how long have you been married? Two and a half months. Why is she the wrong girl? He said, when I used to look at her in the beginning, I couldn't breathe. Now, two, ha two and a half months later, breathing fine. <laughs> I had to explain to this young fellow that if two and a half months after marriage you're having trouble breathing, you've got asthma, you know. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with love, you know. First faces never lost. They're designed to be inspiring. You need it. It's very important. Don't marry somebody that you know, doesn't feel inspiring. When you're choosing a marriage partner, the first thing is it needs to be attraction. It needs to be some chemistry. It's not the most important thing, but it needs to be there. But this, it doesn't last in that way. The first phase is only a flash of first phase. By the way, do you know what our conception of marriage is? That in the spiritual world, there's two facets, male and female. The Quran says, husband and wife are joined at the back, fused at the back before they're born. One side male, one side female. No back. No back means no vulnerable, dark spiritual side. The back is always the side of excretion, darkness, unrecognizability, foreignness. In Hebrew, the word for back, achor, is the same as acher, foreign, strange, other. And then before birth, they're torn apart and brought down to the world to face each other and mesh into a oneness with the vulnerable side, but the work of becoming one. This is called beshet. Beshet means looking for the one who is originally part of yourself. 
The Gemara says a man longs to get married because he's longing for the part of himself that he's lost. Why does a person long? You only long for something that you understand that was once part of you, otherwise we wouldn't speak to you. The Gemara calls a woman a man's lost object. He's looking for his lost object. He dropped his wallet. He's looking for it. The rib, part of him, it's taken out of him, the back. And therefore, our teaching is, this is the concept. Gift of oneness, no work, richly experienced. And then there's a walking through the desert of life to find that partner and spend a lifetime mashing into one. To regain the ecstasy of the original oneness. You know, here's something too exquisitely beautiful for words. If this doesn't move you, there's no hope for you. What was the original Jewish marriage? Avram and Sarah, right? Abram and Sarah. As they're traveling, they cross the border from Israel to Egypt. At that moment, he turns to her and he says, please tell them you're my sister. Remember that? What's going on? Torah is never talking about simple practical strategy. If they know you're my wife, they'll kill me, sister. The depth is this. Every husband is supposed to think of his wife as his sister. What is a sister? What's a brother or a sister? There are two people who are separate but have a common origin. In Hebrew, the word ach, where who speaks Hebrew here? The word ach in Hebrew means to stitch together something that was once torn. La'ache in Hebrew means to stitch. Ichui. If you take a garment and tear it, when you restitch it, it's called la'ache takara. You stitch together. Brothers, sisters, brother, sister, two separate people who were once one, but they have a unique relationship. Husband and wife, two separate beings who were once one. Right? In the original ancient world, when Adam and Eve had children, who married who? Married who? Only brother and sister. That was the perfect relationship. Do you think the world got going by a contaminated, forbidden relationship? That's called Olan Chesed Dibane. The, the original marriages in the world were only between... Now we can't do it for certain reasons that need to be... take time to discuss. But every marriage is a brother-sister reconnection. Right? And therefore the husband, he says, you are my sister. In other words, we're stitching together a one... At the moment where they cross the border from Israel into the contaminated, impure, immoral world of the Egyptians, the husband-wife-brother-sister bond needs to be established. This Bashirt idea doesn't make any practical difference because the, the boy you marry doesn't come with a sign flashing saying, Bashirt, you know. So. Still got to choose somebody on the basis of normal. By the way, this is why you cannot marry a non Jew. You can have a wonderful relationship with a non Jew, why not? But you can't do Kiddushin. Kiddushin means the re establishing of that original spiritual connection. It's not because you're prejudiced, we're better than them. That's not the issue. That's why two men cannot marry each other. These days you need to have to, you have to say it. Two men can't marry because Kiddushin means the two complementary halves of what was once a oneness. The Gemara says two men can have a love for each other deeper than a man and a woman. But it's not marriage, it's not Kiddushin. Anyway, we live in a bizarre world, but that's the concept. So we're always talking about a oneness which begins the process, and then a separation and a difficulty, and a re-establishing of that oneness. Let me add just one more. Jewish history has the same thing. Jewish history has two phases. Phase one is called the phase of the written law. We call that Gilui Panim, Hashem revealed himself. Until 2000, you know, Jewish history has a 6,000 year span, right? 6,000 years. Creation, 6,000 years. We are 5775, right at the end. The Talmud says the, the world as we know it will last for 6,000 years. 
The year now is 5775, late Friday afternoon. You smell the chalent cookie, time to put on your Shabbat clothes. <coughs> We've seen all the prophetic predictions come true in detail, except for the final messianic showdown. Right? That's where we are now. But if you go back 2,350 years, you get to a time when the light went out. First light was until then. Miracles, prophecy, God appearing, speaking openly. The last 2,350 years, we've seen nothing. No open miracles, no prophecy. Where did the light fade? Between Purim and Hanukkah. 2,350 years ago, Purim. 200 years later, Hanukkah. And nothing since then. Purim, post-biblical festival. Added on, not part of the original Torah. Part of the Torah, it has a Megillah, but it doesn't mention Hashem's name. There is a miracle, but it's a natural miracle. No seas being split and dead people. What happened with Purim? There's a king. Didn't like Jews. Happens all the time. Had a prime minister, wanted to kill all the Jews. Happens all the time. In Iran, incidentally. Persia. All natural stuff. Esther means the hidden one. Purim means the luck of the draw. It's all moving into hiddenness. And 150 years later, Hanukkah, there's nothing. Not a Megillah. There's nothing written. Hanukkah is one small miracle. Eight days, a light burned. No one even saw it. It was in the temple. After the war was won. And since then we've seen nothing. We are deep in the phase of walking through what's called the desert of the nations. First phase always is where he does all the work. And the, the tests and temptations and ordeals are a different class. And then the light fades and closes. And we are deep into the phase of the womanly part of history, if you like. The first phase is the male conception. There's no work in that. What's the conception of a child? The male gives half a genetic code, that's all. No pain, no staying power, no tenacious attachment, no loyalty, nothing. The pregnancy is the whole the woman. Every day, or day after day of a pregnancy, more dis- uncomfortable. Finally, danger and difficulty to bring birth to the world. It's all her. Right? Those are the two phases. And therefore, that's, that's how Jewish history works too. And so the thought I leave you with, unless you have any questions. Jackie said, if I talk more than 90, I'll get fired. <laughs> Is that life has two phases, right? And you need to know that. People who don't know this are doomed because, because our kids, our youth, are brought up in a first phase generation. Kids are taught that all happens for free, and as soon as the going gets difficult, to get divorced, find somebody else. Kids are in a quick fix. You know what our children are taught? They're an incredible picture of romance, and they call it love. So they think it has to be like that. As soon as it starts needing work. Kids today who have given a computer are doomed. Because the computer is when you switch it on, it does 10 billion functions in the first two microseconds. If it does only 5 billion, it's called slow. A boy like that gets married. What hope is if the lady he marries doesn't do 10 billion, whatever it is in the first two seconds, you're going to find a faster lady, you know. If you buy your child a computer, you must make them plant a garden. By attending a seed week after week, after month after month, they'll learn something about life. But if it has to happen automatically for free, you'll, where will you? You know, when I was your age, which wasn't that long ago, <laughs> do you know I used to make my mother a cup of tea? I used to boil water and put it into a teapot to warm it, then you poured it out. Then you poured in fresh boiling water. Then you put in tea leaves and you covered it with a special thing to keep warm while it was drawing. While that was happening, you put hot water in the teacup to warm it, then you poured it out. Then you put a strainer. It took a long time to make. Today, the guy's dipping a bag and it's taking too long. Now it's freeze-dried. takes too long to dip the bag. Tomorrow it will be intravenous, you know. <laughs> Phase one is the free gift and the free ride. And our society has built that. But that's not when you get real. 
that's only inspiring and begins the process. But it's when that ends and you have to start walking through the desert that things get real. Love is a long process of giving. The word ava in Hebrew means have to give. Abdesla explains that you love where you give, not where you get. Our kids are brought up to think that they, you love where you get. Someone makes you feel good, you love them. No. If someone makes you feel good, it means you love you. It's like saying, I love fish. <laughs> you mean you're going to kill it and grill it and eat it? What do you mean you love it? If you loved it, you'd put it back in the water, let it swim back to its mother. You don't love the fish, you love you. You prepare to kill for that. When you say to somebody, I love you, meaning you make me feel good. It's not marriage, that's business at best. Parents always love their children more than the children love the parents. Parents always love their children more than the children love the parents. The giving goes in that direction. You know, in, in Kabbalah it's written that you can only love yourself. You can only love yourself. The only way you can ever love anyone else is where you have the maturity to expand your definition of self to include somebody else. When, you mature in, when you've given yourself so intensely to somebody else, of course you love them, it's you. That's love, not when me, you. Ava adds up to 13, exactly like the word Echad, to become one. And that takes time and work. Romance is, the ultimate romance is love at first sight. A complete contradiction is love at first sight. I don't know if you American girls read these things, but, you know, she's taking this Caribbean cruise. She comes up on deck, and there standing at the rail is this good-looking creature with a cleft in his chin and some blonde curls blowing in the breeze, you know, music wafts, you know. Do you read that kind of stuff? Mm. Yeah, you wouldn't admit it, probably. <laughs> Those books end about two pages later. <coughs> because 35 years later, when she comes up on deck, you know, there's no, you know, if there's music, it's because of the problem with the ears, you know. <laughs> Those are phase one experiences. Phase two are the experiences that are built. Anyway, any questions? Yes. Do non-Jews um, get a visit from an angel? Too Absolutely. Totally, totally. The Gemara says this is a human phenomenon. Must be Jewish. Mm-hmm. Every human has a sense of inbuilt morality that comes from there, a sense of purpose and a goal, a sense of thrill when they resonate with an idea that's... But they're just taught the Noahide laws. Yes. And converts are taught what they'll need to convert. And a woman is taught the womanly Torah. And a man is taught his. And the cultural, all specific. That's what you need, yeah. How would you recommend, like, warding off the Yitzhah with this huge guilt that naturally everyone has, that it's never good enough, and you know, like, your highest potential, what, what it could be, and, like, in the back of your mind, you're always kind of putting yourself down, and you can always be more, and you're not doing it? I think this person needs therapy. <laughs> this drive that thinks that you're never good enough it's never good enough is very healthy if it's going to drive you again it's a balance between the neurotic aspect which makes you feel terrible and the drive to be perfect because you're not you're not perfect a great musician is aware that he's always getting better but through with a performance that he's actually involved in at the time no it's a question of balance you need that if you were totally so well adjusted that you thought there was no place to go you'd never grow I think that's a. Uh, I think it has a neurotic facet, which is, as you say, which is not good, but it's also a drive. It has to be used positively. Here's a good formula: during the week, feel the neurotic guilt. Shabbos, just enjoy yourself. <laughs> <laughs> the Shabbos, I've arrived. 
This is it. There's no further place to go right now. Right? It's a way station of pure pleasure. Then you engage the week for the work of becoming greater as a new step. That is a, a new day of self, um, what do you call it, consolidation and uh, self-assertion, validation. No? No? I think so. I think you need to discern between what's neurotic and problematic psychologically and what's the healthy component of that, which is a drive. Yes. You know, if you want a practical exercise, take stock. person needs to take stock of the good stuff I've done, the levels that I've reached, the things I've overcome. Write it up in lipstick on your mirror every morning. Do you see it? Validate. And then you write the goals that you have to achieve. So you've got an agenda, right? So there's always the feeling of... In Jewish culture, this has two facets. You have the Lithuanian Torah world and the Hasidic world. The Lithuanian tendency is always to beat themselves, beat themselves up about not being good enough. The Hasidim, the rhapsodic inspired <laughs> of what I've achieved. And both are needed. Yes? I just had a question about the, the idea of the Bashert. Yeah. So I realized that if the person, we'll just say the man, makes a decision <coughs> to marry a non-Jew, that was yeah. his decision, and yeah. he goes off on that path. But what about his Bashert, like that woman out there who was yeah. meant to marry that man? It's, yeah. It just seems very unfair for like her, she didn't do anything in her life, to never be able to have the opportunity right. to do with it's her unfair. It's unfair to everybody. It's unfair to him, it's painful, the so whole... what happens to her? But aren't there well, more than one? Like Yes, that's true. But um, first of all, we don't know who the Bashert is, so it has no practical relevance. She may marry somebody else, right? And how do you know who was really meant to be anyway? Again, we approach this on a practical basis. You find a suitable person who has the basic requirements, and then you make it work, right? So we don't really, we can't answer that question because we don't actually know. But if you push me, Yes, okay. In theory, that's right. Or or refused to get married. Or got married and ridiculously divorced. It's all possible. Okay. Or died and she's left alone. These are all unfairnesses. Okay. The root of your question is can you ever do anything that actually unfairly harms anyone else? And you just gave one version of them. You can abuse somebody, you can make their life immersive, all kinds of things. Read my book. (laughs) <laughs> on free will, which is a whole section on how we can ever use our free will to do something unfair and undeserved to somebody else. It's a massive philosophical problem. Can't do justice to it. Now. It's called freedom, free will. And my will is called. My, the book is called <laughs> Will, Freedom, and Destiny, well. which has all these subjects in here. Yeah. My question is. Sorry, I wrote another book called Living Inspired, <laughs> which is. Living Inspired. Yeah, that's like this whole theme of inspiration and discipline with all its applications through the year and through Jewish experience and so forth. But the book on freedom is called, on will, is called Will, Freedom, and Destiny. Yes, I'm sorry. Um, okay, so I don't know if this is going to be a long question. How do you know the difference between when you were hit with inspiration? for an illusion. For example, you meet yeah. somebody, right. and for the first month it's yeah. all flowers and right. butterflies, yeah. and then it disappears. Yes, okay. So Good question. So here's the answer. The first step in all Jewish development and all human development is to develop <coughs> objectivity, to see reality. The most difficult seeing reality is you, in you. It's hard enough on the outside. How do you develop this objectivity? One, 
ruthless, brutal honesty with yourself. And two, make yourself a teacher. Somebody who is more mature than you, not afraid to tell you the truth about yourself, knows how to crack you open and show you your, your illusions. This is called Asayla Kharav. In the traditional yeshiva world, we look for teachers who are brutal. Today, you do that, the student runs away. Because they need their egos to... I'm not talking about little kids, I'm talking about mature people. You have to be strong enough to take it. I am taught, my, my Rebbe, my Rama, is somebody who is very much like that. I've heard him say things that are... Once in a class, a student asked a question. The rabbi said to him, that question is not even stupid. <laughs> a few minutes later, the guy asked another question. He said, that's already stupid. Now, the guy was Israeli, so it didn't bother him. <laughs> but, you, know, you, know, you know, he was strong enough to take it, right? So, yeah, so you need... A, sometimes a parent is very good. Parents are not objective about their kids, but they're very often objective about things the kid's not objective about. I went to my dad when I was 17. My, my father was an amazing doctor. And ever since I was three, I just wanted to be like him. Never had another thought. 17 years old, I'm applying for medical school. I went to my dad and I said, you know, I'm applying for medicine. I'll never forget that moment. He put down what he was reading and he said, you know, I think you'd be better as a teacher. I said, teacher? I thought my father had been drinking. Who wants to be a teacher? They pay you that. I completely ignored him, did medicine, became a teacher. <laughs> so, you know, so step one, develop objectivity in any profession, in any aspect of life. And it's very hard. And for women, sometimes more difficult because they're more bonded to their experience. This is one of the reasons why women are sometimes not allowed to be witnesses in Jewish law. Why? Many women are far more intelligent than many men, but a woman bonds with her experience, and a witness has to detach from his experience. And that's not what we want. I'll tell you as a doctor, a man comes in with a kid with a broken leg, it's a kid with a broken leg. The woman comes in, she's living through it. She's got a broken leg. It's like her, you know, it's like she's bonded with the experience, right? Married couples, they have an argument. The husband thinks, okay, it's an argument. Tomorrow it'll be fine. She thinks the world's gone. It's like, why? Because the relationship is total, right? She's bonded into it completely. It's not because she's feeble-minded. It's because she's strong in heart. Yes. Um, to go back to the, with the new when we're picking a perspective suitor, right? When we're looking at premise levels, are we supposed to look at someone kind of in the same bracket of new of the hero? Like, how do you judge? Because girls and guys have different desires, and they're going to be at different stages of new of the hero. And like, how do you pick one that's going to be, you know, helpful to your growth? Okay. Growth? Right. Well, let's think about this. If you're talking about religious level, yeah. let's talk about religion. It's very important to share a common goal. One of the absolutes, almost absolute thing in marriage is to have a common religious identity. Not the same level, but the same inspiration and direction. It's a recipe for disaster when one is more religiously motivated and the other one is not. It's just a disaster. And we've seen this time and again. Don't need to be on the same level. Give me any time a person on level one who's moving up and enthusiastic than somebody on level ten who doesn't care. So there needs to be a common goal and that's fine. If you mean the same moral level, like you're considering marrying somebody who's dishonest, problematic, and deceptive, like, <laughs> well, no, you know, no. I mean, are you there to improve him? Um, risky. So there you need to be totally on the same level of integrity and, and, and full respect. Absolutely, yes. But religious level doesn't have to be the same as long as there's a commonality or a very mature agreement to support each other, even though you're not, you know, yeah. Sorry, but identity of personality, totally irrelevant. That means the same desires, likes, tastes, etc. Ridiculous. Mm -hmm. 
He likes Italian food, you like Chinese He likes purple underground noise, you like Bach. What? It's irrelevant. As long as you respect. The best marriage I ever saw was two people who were completely dissimilar. The husband, totally logical, methodical engineer. My mother-in-law, I mean the, the woman. <laughs> she's a totally emotional artist. Complete opposites. Amazing respect for each other. We'd never dream of interfering with each other's. Bedroom door closed. Kids know they come first for each other. The children and their family tell me they never saw a personal argument ever. I mean personal. You can argue violently about an issue, but personal? Never. So you'd have to marry somebody who's got the same tastes and desires and thought, as long as there's incredible respect. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Um, so I was wondering if the first light is this perfect divine potential yeah. that's kind of like a gift from Hashem, yeah. and the second is the actual reality. Yeah. Is the goal the second to reach that potential, or is that not the goal because that's really unattainable? Perfection is unattainable, that's true, but you're only held accountable for maximizing what you could possibly maximize, right? So you might be given 70 years to do it and get very far. You might be given fewer. Who, who knows? But the inspiration that was given to you was for a purpose. When you saw that potential, that's what you personally needed to walk that path. How far you get is not your work. And the Mishnah says the work is not given to you to complete. But that's not the judgment. The judgment is to achieve the maximum you can with your circumstances under your... We spoke about this in the session before you came. Yes. Any last question? Yes. Um... So it seems like a, a pretty like selfish journey as you go through like inspiration yeah. and that you know the desert and all that stuff. Um, at what point are, do you become responsible for inspiring someone else? Well, we only discuss the narrow theory of your own self-development, which is selfish and is very important. You're in the world to perfect yourself. Right. Now you'll have other people hanging onto your wagon as you go along. First, there'll be a husband who'll need to be, you know, taught, disciplined, brought up, uh, educated, uh, <laughs> broken in. Uh, you, know, you know, that's just a fact, right? Many men have childish character, what can I say, you know? Um, and then you, that expands. If you're gifted enough to be a teacher, if you have something to say for yourself and other people attach themselves to you as a teacher, role model, etc., absolutely, you're taking all that with you. So like as a friend or something. Absolutely, yes. You're responsible for a friend. Friend isn't just to enjoy responsible for a friend in the kind way, knowing how to help them grow. A real friendship isn't just like for buying gifts and, you know, kind of enjoy. It's like really helping that person grow maximally, tactfully, you know. So absolutely, yes, yes. A marriage unit, a family unit, or a professional, whatever it is, is all growing together. A person with a larger vision, if you have a large enough vision, you'd be concerned about the whole world. Not just the Jewish people. If you have a big vision, you feel the pain of a whole Jewish people suffering today. And if you're big enough, right, you're supposed to feel the pain of the world. It's not easy, but we try. try. Last question. Okay, let's thank Jackie very much for the. Thank you, Rabbi Chad. Thank you. 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 Thank you.